This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. More whistleblowers, it looks like, possibly. Legal battles also over the president's taxes and a big trade meeting coming up between U.S. and Chinese officials. And it's just Monday. Let's check in with Craig Gordon. He's got uh, he's the guy responsible for keeping it all straight for us here at Bloomberg News. He's Washington bureau chief. He joins us from our Bloomberg 99.1 studio in the nation's capital. Uh, Craig, yep, already a busy week. Um, what how are you guys prioritizing your coverage there in Washington when it comes to the president? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's impeachment, impeachment, impeachment all the time. Um, but we did we did sort of know last week there would be kind of fallow periods where you've got the House is kind of bringing up different people to, to interview. There was someone supposed to be there today whose name I could say. You wouldn't even know it. I barely knew it, and they didn't end up coming anyway. So there's sort of a lot of a lot of peaks and valleys on that. The next big thing we're waiting for there, uh, as you may recall, on Friday, the House Democrats subpoenaed the White House for some of those key documents, some of the call records and some of the other calls that we haven't really seen the transcript of, unlike that one from Ukraine. The White House has been saying they will not provide any further documents uh, until Nancy Pelosi takes a vote in the House officially starting an impeachment process, which you know she really didn't do. She sort of just stepped up to a microphone and said, we're doing an inquiry. Um, we all scratched our head a little bit because there is a formal process for an impeachment. We're not really in it right now, but they are doing a lot of fact-finding. So the White, we're kind of waiting for the White House's next move. But obviously, as we're waiting for that, we had uh, we had Turkey, we had Trump's taxes, we had all kinds of things to juggle. So you have to kind of stay nimble um, here in Washington, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, I think we're doing that. Well, and Craig, talk to us about this Turkey situation, because I have to say – I probably, along with a lot of other people, consider myself fairly well-informed about the news. And yet, I'm reading this, I'm confused, and it keeps sort of jerking back and forth. Help us find the signal in the noise here. Sure. It's it's tricky. Um, I mean, uh, the, essentially, you know, people know that Syria is, is a kind of a, almost a bordering on a failed state. Bashar al-Assad still runs the place. But there's Iranian influence, there's Russian influence, there's Turkish influence. The United States has some troops there. It's kind of a, a country that's kind of being pulled apart um, at the seams. But the part that matters for what happened today is that the United States has been backing some Kurdish rebels uh, from Kurdistan, you know, from uh, people of Kurdish descent. And they have been trying to hold down a part of northern Syria sort of for the good guys, you know, in a sense, on, the, on behalf of the United States. The problem with the Kurds is that their number one enemy is the Turks. The Turks hate the Kurds. The Kurd, they think the Kurds are terrorists. There has been Kurdish terrorism over the years. The, we think these are sort of, again, sort of the good guys. But the Turkish uh, government, Erdogan, and folks there have a real have real trouble with the Kurds. So we have been holding Turkey back from sort of clearing out the Kurds in northern uh, Syria. Donald Trump basically said no more, that uh, the United States will essentially pull its support from the Kurds out, will kind of get out of the way and let Turkey come in and kind of clear out that part of northern Syria where the Kurds are. Um, Again, this all seems very distant from the day-to-day life of most Americans. But what a lot of people are upset about is, first of all, that is, you know, Trump is reversing literally, you know, years of foreign policy. Secondly, what signal is he sending to other people around the world who kind of stand with the United States, help us out? He kind of said we will turn tail and run sometimes when when it's uh, convenient for us. So while it's a very remote from the day-to-day headlines, it's a really, obviously, Syria is a very fragile 
uh, part of the globe. You've got ISIS there. You've got a lot of bad guys there. Um, this Why is, is he doing de- it destabilizing. now? Um, Donald Trump campaigned on getting out of Syria and okay. getting out of Afghanistan. And so, like most things with Donald Trump, we're all a little shocked sometimes when he does it or the methodology he uses to do it. But he told us he thinks that the United States is in too many of these endless wars. Certainly, we've been in Syria for a long time. There's really no end in sight. Assad is well established right now. There, there is kind of a question about w- what's really happening there and how to move it forward. Again, we wrote a story this morning uh, here at Bloomberg News. It's on the terminal. It's on the website talking about how, you know, in the past, some of the foreign policy graybeards that were around Trump, like Jim Mattis, like John Bolton, believed there was a strategic reason for the United States to stay in Syria to kind of hold off the Iranians, hold off the Russians and whatnot. Trump never really bought that argument. He sort of went along because they told him to. But he is now saying enough. You know, I want the United States out of these wars and uh, potentially leaving a vacuum for, for, again, other bad guys to fill. And meanwhile, trade looms large in all of this. We have an indication that there will be a senior Chinese official in Washington later this week. Uh, I believe. How is this playing against all of the rest of the backdrop that you just described? Well, it's interesting because what we've also learned in Washington lately is every story is just one big story, right? Yeah. So the China trade thing got bollocked up a little bit with the um, with the Joe Biden thing when Donald Trump stood at the podium last week um, and did the very thing he denied doing with Ukraine, where he said, I didn't pressure the Ukrainians to investigate Joe Biden. And then he stood at a podium and said, the Chinese should investigate Joe Biden. So we got to kind of swear that circle a little bit, but um, kind of certainly leaving the very strong indication that um, he might go easy on China if they were to uh, to kind of poke around at what Joe Biden, it was really not Joe Biden, it was Hunter Biden, um, his son. There was a fund there that uh, Hunter Biden put some money into, best we can tell. He never got a dime out of it, probably even lost a bunch of money. But in Trump's, you know, telling of the story, he was kind of ripping off, uh, ripping off the Chinese and the Chinese should do something about it. Larry Kudlow came out today and said, you know, Joe Biden's name has never come up in the China trade talks. Um, that's his story and he's sticking to it. But the um, but it certainly put a cloud of impeachment sort of query over the Chinese trade talks. Look, I think the most important thing that happened in China trade is that the Chinese came out today and said, let's get some of it done now. Maybe we'll do yeah. some of it next year. Next year happens to be a U.S. election year right. when Donald Trump's standing for re-election. Uh, the Chinese certainly own a calendar and know how to read it. And so to me, that was the Chinese already beginning a process of slow walking this trade deal to make it tricky for Trump to do during uh, as he stands for re-election. Man, we didn't even get to the president's taxes. Craig, you're going to have to come back. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be plenty for us to talk about later in the week. Craig Gordon, thank you as always. He is our Washington bureau chief joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. Only Monday, and yet there's so much going on. So many things, as we said at the top of the show, Washington very much driving the conversation. Although, as we've talked about, the markets seeming to, at least for the moment, be shrugging it off. That obviously can change as the week goes on, especially as we get a little more into the trade scene. All right, so we got impeachment, we got trade, we got a strange world of energy, as Dave Wilson laid out at the top of the show. So how does it play through to the markets? What are you to make of it as an investor? Let's pose all of that to Scott Clements. He is chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman. They look after about $5.6 trillion, that's with a tra. Uh, he joins us on the phone from Pittsburgh. Scott, great to have you with Carol and myself. Thank you, Jason. Nice to be with you. All right. So what do you make of trade? Let's start there because it feels like it's been weighing on the market at various times. We have seen 
individual stocks and the broader market move on a tweet or on a news story related to U.S. and China specifically? How do you factor that into your strategy at this point? Well, this is a tough market for traders for precisely the reason, Jason, that you mentioned, is that it swings back and forth based on a hint or based on a tweet. And, and, and so I'm glad I'm not a trader because trading a market like this means you've got to constantly get two things right. What's going to happen and what does it mean for markets? What I'm more concerned about with trade is the threat that it poses to the broader economy. For example, if the woes of the manufacturing sector, which is bearing the brunt of the trade at escalating tariffs, if that woe begins to leak into the employment markets, the labor markets, that begins to impair consumer sentiment. That's a much bigger part of the economic puzzle. I'm not expecting that, but one of the things that keeps me up at night is the degree to which we might begin to see some leakage from manufacturing into into employment. You know, what I have a hard time getting my head around is we have these conversations and we point to weakness in the manufacturing sector and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, weakness, but we're a services-led economy. That's the bulk of our economic momentum. So it's not so important. Then I get another conversation where folks say, yeah, but, you know, manufacturing, it's still important. And, you know, it kind of has a trickle-down effect if you start to see some weakness there. So, you know, how much does it ultimately matter? How much does it determine what happens in the U.S. economy? So, you know, it's more uh, a threat to sentiment, I think. So think about the hypothetical person who's employed in the services sector. So uh, job gains are now 108 months in a row and counting. Wages are rising faster than inflation. All of the hard economic data is actually very supportive. But if at the margin I think, yeah, it feels good right now, but I'm in the 10th, the 11th year of an economic cycle, maybe I won't uh, replace the washer and dryer. Maybe I won't uh, replace the car. Maybe I won't go out for a steak dinner tonight. It's that consumer sentiment that begins to have an effect on the overall economy. We haven't seen that hit yet. I'm not expecting it to happen. So manufacturing in and of itself isn't that big a part of the economy, but the economy is so integrated that if manufacturing uh, problems begin to become more widespread and longer, it could. It certainly could. And what about impeachment? You know, we just got off of a segment with our Washington Bureau Chief and Executive Editor down there, and he led by saying impeachment really leads every conversation in Washington. Is that the case more broadly, or is that more of an inside-the-beltway type of mentality? You know, I we have Brown Brothers has clients all over the country, and I spend a lot of time traveling to visit them. It, it's obviously it's a topic of conversation. It's rarely the first topic of conversation out in uh, the heartland, uh, if you will. Mm-hmm. It certainly poses a threat to sentiment. But if you look back at historical precedents, unfortunately there aren't many in the history of the republic. But if you look back at the pre- presidencies that ended prematurely. Uh, Kennedy's assassination in 63, Nixon's resignation in 74, and I'll throw in Clinton, even though obviously that ended with an acquittal. The uncertainty around the politics weighs on the market for a couple of weeks, but within about a month, investor attention turns back to the underlying economic and market and corporate fundamentals. So I don't, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because obviously it's a very large development, particularly when combined with an election year. But I think it's one of those things that poses more of a threat to sentiment than it does pose a threat to fundamentals. All right. We're going to leave it on that note. Scott, thank you so much. Scott Clemens is chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman. Who's right? Who's wrong? 
So 2019 is going to be the year of many things, uh, failed IPOs, and it's also going to be the activist investors, man, out in full force. Elliott Management uh, today concerned about a brain drain over at AT&T, one of the stories that uh, terminal users are definitely writing big t- uh, reading, excuse me, big time. Jerry Smith writes about the media world for Bloomberg Businessweek, joining us along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Uh, AT&T, man, I feel like, you know, this is, we talk about case studies. AT&T is one certainly for all of the business schools uh, to take a look at. What's their latest problem? Well, I mean, right now they're digesting their big acquisition of Time Warner, which is the owner of HBO and uh, CNN and Warner Brothers. And so, you know, you're taking a company that AT&T, it's a wireless company. It owns DirecTV. And it's also, you know, it's trying to digest this company that's really an entertainment company. So, you use the word digest a couple times now. Like I'm picturing like a, a boa with like a gigantic rodent in yeah. the middle because that's about that's how well it's going so far, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. My, my colleague was comparing it to like a, a snake swallowing like an alligator or something. I mean, it's, you know, it's a big company and it's also a, a different culture. I mean, AT&T is very much like, a, you know, a button up spreadsheet mm-hmm. kind of culture. Um, Time Warner has always been, you know, they... Uh, celebrities and managing those relationships. So there was a lot of um, you know questions about how these two cultures were going to integrate with each other. And that I think that's that I guess clash, if you want, is kind of uh, encapsulated in the lead anecdote in the story. What, what did you guys find out as in your reporting? Yeah, you know, not long ago there was a meeting where an AT and T executive, um, you know, was new, and and he suggested that HBO should really have commercials on it. And HBO has been around for 46 years, never had commercials. And you could hear a pin drop in that. Movie that idea didn't go over well. And, and the HBO executives <laughs> pushed back. what I call back. a wait what moment. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, and, and a spokesman for the company said, you know, we will never have commercials on HBO. So you can get an idea of how that idea went across. But And that uh, executive is no longer at the company, which is yeah. also interesting, right? So it's not like the AT&T people are, are, are getting to run the show totally, right? There, there is still within HBO a little bit of uh, of mojo right but i mean you know in addition to him leaving the company there's been uh, a lot of high level executives from time warner who've left the company in the last year you know the AT&T ceo when he announced this deal way back in 2016 he said one of the big values of time warner is its executive leadership and then in the last year we've seen the ceo of hbo richard plepler leave the head of turner david levy leave Kevin Sujahara at Warner Brothers left for, um, you know, a, a, a Me Too related story. These but, are big names that yeah. are no longer there. Well, and there are questions even about Stevenson at, at this point, right? I mean, like, there's just a lot swirling here. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, there's a question of how long Randall Stevenson will be the CEO, and they just appointed John Stanky as sort of his heir apparent. Right. Um, you know, John Stanky is running Warner Media right now, and he's got a lot on his plate. I mean, one of the big things uh, coming up early next year is they're going to introduce a streaming service called HBO Max. It's going to enter what's already a very crowded landscape for streaming services. You know, Disney Plus is coming out, NBC has one, uh, Apple has one, and they're all trying to, you know, basically play Netflix's game. So, you know, AT&T is just an incredibly complicated company right now. It used to be a phone company, then they bought DirecTV, and they got into the entertainment business. So is Elliot right to be worried? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, Elliot had a lot of concerns, and, and one of the concerns was this brain drain and these executives. And this who, is Elliot Management, who loves to like identify yeah. opportunities and come in and be vocal about them as an activist investor. What did they say? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that they mentioned was uh, they singled out the executive turnover at Time Warner. They singled out DirecTV, and, and they said that AT&T should consider divesting DirecTV. I mean, this is a satellite TV company that's been losing uh, an enormous amount of subscribers in the past year. As people are cutting the cord, um, you know, AT and T has said that Directv is actually really crucial to our strategy. We're not we're not considering doing that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Elliott Management's letter just went through this entire company and had all sorts of different criticisms. And um, you know, uh, I think what happens next is going to be really interesting. And don't forget, like the backdrop to all of this is how is media content going to be monetized? And mm-hmm. right. Netflix clearly has an answer. And all of this is trying to... How, how can we compete with that? What is a model that might work? That's why the, you know, AT&T's acquisition of all this stuff happened. It's why the Warner media story is sort of the rising, the rising star in all of this. It's why Disney bought Fox. It's why D- Disney bought Fox. And it's all the carnage that we love yeah. you know, as journalists. As it gets to unfold here... But it's ultimately about somebody built a better mousetrap, and everybody else is still scrambling to figure out what other mousetraps are supposed to look like now. Yeah, that's great. All right, we're going to leave it there. Jerry Smith, media reporter for Bloomberg. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, catching us up on one of the most read stories on the terminal. It's all about activism and AT&T and what may or may not happen next. Remember when AT&T got together with TCI? It's like the ups and downs. Now you're making me feel old. No, I just like the big deal that it's done and here we are today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and a lot of this drama reminds me of some of the, like the Disney stuff and ESPN and all the things that happened uh, back in the day. Am I losing control? All right, so a lot of twists and turns in the trade war between the U.S. and China. That's for sure. They're well-known to our listeners and well-known to our guest and colleague, Andy Brown. He's editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy. And I want to get into the latest as it relates to all that. But first, let's talk a little basketball. NBA, the Houston Rockets, the general manager there, tweeting – Deleting, but listen, it was too late, and it has provoked a storm that we have not seen in quite a while, especially around the NBA. Remind us what happened and why people are so agitated, Andy. Yeah, so the uh, Houston Rockets general manager, Daryl Morey, he tweets his support for Hong Kong demonstrations. Stand for freedom or fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Predictably, this triggers an immediate, uh, you know, outrage on the Internet or in China. Um, And he's forced uh, very quickly. And and, and the Rockets immediately find themselves frozen out of the Chinese market. This is a big deal. I mean, 800 million Chinese people watch the NBA in China. And notable that it's the Rockets because, of course, Yao Ming played for the Rockets. I mean, and he is the most famous Chinese. He's the only Chinese 
NBA player in the Hall of Fame. Right? Sure, and he's now the Chinese commissioner of the Chinese Basketball Federation, which has also suspended all ties uh, with the Houston Rockets. So, I mean, the Rockets are really caught in this terrible position, on the one hand, between the outrage of their enormous fan base in China, and then, on the other hand, having come up with... And to be honest, it wasn't really a full-throated apology. They came up with an apology that wasn't really an apology, at least in the English language. It was sort of, we're sorry that we've hurt the feelings of the right. Chinese people. It was much more abject in the Chinese. I mean, it was a real rebuke uh, you know, to Daryl Morey in the Chinese. And nevertheless, you know, the, it was enough to have sparked outrage in this country over you know, yet another American company betraying its values, kowtowing to the Chinese Communist Party. Right. And really, the United States or Westerners trying to tell the Chinese what to do? Well, more perhaps the other way around, uh, China telling the world what it yeah. has to do. So to its critics, I mean, China basically, the Chinese Communist Party demands the right to shape the way the rest of the world talks about China, which to the rest of the world looks a lot like China insisting on global censorship, China mm -hmm. exporting its values, China, you know, uh, uh, arrogating the right to, to uh, you know, to dictate how the world talks about it. Well, so then fast forward or not fast forward, but, you know, in terms of the U.S.-China trade talks, here we are expecting another round, Andy, this week. And I love, you know, the column you wrote, you end by saying China has very little incentive to try to turn around his fortunes, his meaning President Trump's. So m with that in mind, I know you have repeatedly said to Jason and my, myself here that you don't anticipate any kind of big trade deal to be done. So what is this week about? And, and we've got confirmation of that from our own Bloomberg reporting, which is that Liu He, who's leading the Chinese delegation for these talks on Thursday and Friday, is coming, to, coming over with a much slimmed-down agenda. He's not going to be offering concessions on the industrial mm -hmm. structure of China. He's not going to be offering any giveaways you know, on subsidies to Chinese state champions. It's going to be more or like, you know, agricultural purchases, doing something about intellectual property, sort of giveaways that leaves the Chinese system essentially intact, which, of course, it was, it was always going to be like that. And yet people seem surprised <laughs> that, that it was always going to be like that, in part because the president of the United States has been, you know, portraying this in very uh, candidly, like, simple terms of winning and losing. And that seems to be throwing it into a little bit of confusion. Right. Well, I mean, it, it perhaps comes as a surprise to Trump, who has asserted regularly that trade wars are easy to win. Right. Uh, but in fact, it turns out the trade wars are incredibly difficult to win. And in fact, everybody loses. And what's happening right now is that the U.S. economy is losing. Manufacturing se the sector of the economy is, in, is already in recession. And of course, you're seeing slowdown in the Chinese economy. Global trade and, and investment has been affected. Mm -hmm. And we're heading into a global downturn as a result. We just about the railroads and railroad traffic being down here in the United States as a result of the uh, trade war. What I'm curious about, Andy, is how important, though, is it that China, especially watching kind of the troubles that the president seems to be entering in with the impeachment inquiry and so on, how important is it to the Chinese to lock up something with President Trump versus waiting till 2020. Yeah, well, he keeps saying this, that the Chinese, you know, would prefer to wait until a Democrat come in, comes into office because they're going to be softer on China. 
I don't see that. I don't think the Chinese believe that. Frankly, there's not a lot of daylight between Republicans and Democrats right. when it comes to China. If you look at what Elizabeth Warren has said, she looks every bit as protectionist as Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Right. Yeah. But from the Chinese perspective, would they rather do something, even if it's my or assuming it is minor, with President Trump versus waiting for somebody new in the White House. You know what? When he came to power, they thought, here's a guy we can, we can do business with. He's a right. businessman. He's a pragmatist. And I think that that misconception has now, you know, been basically blown away. They really fundamentally don't believe that a deal is possible with him uh, and are less inclined to believe that, a, even less inclined to believe a deal is impossible now that they've seen his political vulnerability with this escalating right. impeachment yeah. inquiry. Well, I want to synthesize just briefly before we let you go sort of these two elements and go back, if we can, to basketball, because it does feel like this is very of the moment, right? I mean, this is representative of how tense it is between these two countries. And you do wonder if this trade war wasn't going on, if the sensitivities wouldn't be quite so heightened. But I pose that to you because you know this far better than I do. I think that's right. I think the the NBA is in many ways a microcosm of the wider uh, uh, difficulties that the U.S. has in getting to a trade agreement with China. China actually has an awful lot of power. If enough of your business is in China and the NBA, as I say, is 800 million people watching, then, you know, you basically tow the Chinese line. Right. Um, and we've seen a procession of foreign companies basically kowtowing, apologizing to China over the last few months. McDonald's, Marriott Hotel, Versace, Gap, and so on. Changing the Chinese system is really going to be incredibly difficult. It's like remarkable. Right. It is. Although and it is remarkable. The beginning I, of a new era. I feel and like. I have to say, like watching just how sharp the reaction was over this NBA situation, you know, even ha- having Senator Ted Cruz, who's a huge Rockets fan, sort of weigh in and ba- basically say, no, 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 no. This is not how we should uh, be doing this. And you have an unusual situation with a lot of people agreeing with Ted Cruz. There yeah, you go. Exactly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Andy Brown, editorial director of Bloomberg New Economy here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Very thoughtful column, as always, synthesizing not just trade, but the minute to minute back and forth that we're seeing between the U.S. and China. Right. And the bigger perspective of what uh, China is up to. I'm in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Andrew Slimman is Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, joining us on the phone from Chicago by the way the MSIF Global Concentrated Portfolio Fund is up nearly 8% on average annually in each of the past three years. So it's beating most of its peers in that category. Andrew involved in the management of that fund. Andrew, nice to have you here with us. Um, what are the opportunities that you guys are finding right now globally? Sure. So, look, I think at the end of the day, the market has seen a ton of bad news, and it just doesn't go down anymore. And I think the reason for that is there's total selling exhaustion. In other words, we've seen so much money that's been pulled out of the market the last uh, nine months 
that the market just stops going down bad news. And, and the reason for that really is that the market really hasn't made much headway since uh, 2017. So I think when you look at it, there's, it's only a question of when ultimately the market breaks to the upside, because I think you know if there was going to be a downside break, we would have seen it by now. So the risk reward looks pretty good for U.S. equities um, uh, in terms of not a lot of downside eventually breaks to the upside. In Europe, you've got some horrible uh, PMI numbers coming out of Europe, but actually when you look at the stats, when you have very bad numbers, the market tends to do pretty well over the next uh, six and twelve months because it's baked into prices. So I, I, don't, I you know, I, I think again, it's just a, yet another example of where you have to consider the market's a forward predictor. It's looking forward. You can't look at the current data. And so it, it, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I think October is a little early. I think we'll have uh, a pretty good economic story for next year. Uh, and I think the market will start to realize that later in this year. So I expect we're going to have a classic kind of Christmas year-end rally. I know we didn't have it last year, uh, and maybe it's a little early. But again, the risk-reward seems pretty good setting up into the fourth quarter. And so, Andrew, how do you construct a, a portfolio here in terms of sectors and in terms of some of the names uh, that you guys especially like? Yeah, so look, I think it's from a style standpoint. We're style agnostic. I'm just looking for where the best ideas come. And the the, the reality is, is that value stocks priced in uh, a very bad situation. And so you're having a rally in a lot of the value stocks like the banks uh, and the industrials have recovered, uh, again, as I think the market is saying, gee, next year is going to be better. So I, I wouldn't avoid uh, value stocks, um, but you've had a big sell-off in some of the growth names over the last month or so. And um, as much as some of the software names, some of the, the, the cloud names got very crowded, the big growth stocks really haven't done much over the last year. And therefore, I don't think growth is is outrageously priced. So I think there's a, there is still opportunities in technology. And so I like this combination of growth, a little bit of growth and a little bit of, of value. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be all in one another. I don't think this is a big rotation from growth into, mm-hmm. uh, into value, but I think it's more like 2010, 2015, where you had this big sell-off in value and then the realization that the world wasn't ending and value came back. But ultimately, in a slow growth environment, growth will continue to do well. So I'm looking at some of your top holdings. It's like a who's who in terms of uh, global corporate, uh, you know, global corporate companies. Um, Royal Dutch Cell, Alibaba, Microsoft, Diageo, Tencent, LVMH, Moet Hennessy. Um, anything that you've been adding to? Tell me a little bit about you know your kind of buy and hold strategy here. Yeah, so I like look. I you know again being agnostic. I'm just looking for opportunities where that of good companies that the market uh, doesn't appreciate. Obviously, the big um, Chinese names are there's a black cloud over them because of the trade deal. But the reality of their business is is driven by domestic economy. And as long as you have uh, people moving from the lower class and middle class in China, those big companies will continue uh, to benefit. The other big beneficiaries are companies uh, like uh, Louis Vuitton that sell into uh, sell into China. Um, and so I think those companies will continue to benefit uh, as well. And then again, there's right. a smattering of growth and value names. Andrew, I do wonder if when you, since you are looking at global company 
Chinese, and I'm thinking you mentioned China and the U.S.-China trade war. We're talking with our Andy Brown earlier. You know, companies, we certainly are seeing global companies kowtow to whatever China wants because they want to have access to that billion-plus market. Right down to professional basketball teams. (laughs) Right down to professional basketball teams. So are you at all adjusting your um, investment strategy because of some of the tensions that are going on in trade? Or do you assume that the Chinese market will continue to be pretty open to global companies? I do think you have to be focused on companies that are primarily uh, focused on Hong Kong, because if you look at tourism and things like that, that has dropped off materially. But consumption patterns in China have not really slowed. So as long as it's more China-focused, I think you're okay. If it's Hong Kong-focused, I'd be more worried. And so what about, uh, just to bring up one of the other sort of factors out there in the market, I do wonder about impeachment talk. I mean, is that something that you can at all model? Is it something you think about in terms of political risk, especially if it starts to have an effect on who the president may be running against, who is president uh, going forward? Is that something that enters into your thinking at all? Yeah, I mean, look, I I think it's amazing to me that the market just took this in stride. Yeah. Right? And to me, it just reinforces, you know, really what we've been writing about since August, which is there's, there's, there's selling exhaustion. You know, in other words, bear markets bottom, and I certainly don't, I'm not suggesting we're in a bear market, but bear markets bottom when there's just no more selling into bad news because people are done selling. And it's the other than the fact that the market is near and high, it feels kind of like that right now, which yeah. is uh, people just have selling exhaustion. So I think uh, the impeachment issues, um, certainly that could be a worry, but I think the market is saying a lot of this is embedded. Now, the primaries next year and how this affects the, the Democratic candidate, I think that could have an impact on the market early next year. But for now, I don't think uh, the market's focused on it. I think the next thing to come is the market will start to anticipate, you know, the Fed's cutting rate. There usually is about a five-quarter lag. You see an acceleration. I think you're going to see some type of trade deal later this year. And I think the market will start to say, huh, economy is going to actually pick up next year. And it will, and, and that's what will propel this out of this trading range, in my belief. But ultimately, you're right. Next year, election, uh, who the candidate on the Democratic side, I think that's going to play a bigger role next year for the market. And if you were going to put some new money to work, where would you put it? Well, again, I, I, I think, you know, U.S., I think you can buy some tech stocks, I think offset with financials, and I, and I really like Asia, and I think because the, these stocks continue to report very good numbers, and uh, the multiples are low because of China trade deals. So I think those are the, those are the, the best opportunities that, that I see out there right now. All right. Andrew Sliman is Managing Director, Senior Portfolio Manager from Morgan Stanley Investment Management. He joined us on the phone from Chicago. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.